Pray with me, Father in heaven. That's just amazing. And so we come now in the name of Jesus, the very one who sits at the right hand of this wonderful throne. And we plead our case in him, that is. And we need you. We pray that you would grant to us help now to be able to hear this word and to rejoice in it and to apply it and to live it in such a way that brings you glory by blessing us in such a way that people look at us and say, wow, it really is true about this Jesus. So, Father, we pray even now that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, please. I'm going to begin with verse 14 and read through chapter 5, verse 3. So Hebrews in chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, what we have here is two commands which reveal two concerns. Now, these two concerns which are revealed, we've dealt with before, we'll deal with again, but we've dealt with before, but now it, it, they're, they're sort of uh, given to us, in a sense, by way of these two commands. The two commands are this, are these, first in verse 14, that we're to hold fast our confession, and second in verse 16, that we're to draw near to the throne of grace. Those two com- commands to us, that we're to hold fast our confession, that is, very deliberately, very intentionally, we're to make certain that always we believe, that always we're holding fast to this truth of Christ, that nothing comes to take that away, that nothing comes to deter that, that nothing comes to dilute that, that we're holding fast this confession that we believe in Jesus, and not simply with our lips, but also with our lives, in the sense that we're dependent upon Him and we know it. And we trust Him. And then secondly, he's saying, I want you to draw near to this throne that's a throne of grace. That is, I don't want you to be prayerless. And I don't want you to think yourself sufficient. I want you to understand that always you need to be very, very close, drawing near, very, very close to this throne, this royal throne, this throne of God, which is a throne of grace. Those two commands. Now... The concerns that underlie those two commands are these. Number one, it appears as if they, and I think this is a word to everyone, all believers, they are, are finding themselves in a situation where their grip on their confession is loosening. 
In fact, he puts it like this in chapter 10 and verse 35. He writes this, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He's saying, don't throw that away. Don't let anything grab that. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your hope. Don't lessen your grip on your confession, on what you believe that is true about Christ. Don't let anything get you there. And we've seen that there's a number of things that can come that can cause a person to, to lose their grip on this confession. In fact, we'll see them throughout this whole book. For instance, in chapter 3 and verse 13, we've already gone through this a couple of different times, a couple of different ways. But he writes this, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we understand that sin exists, sin is alive, and it deceives us, it lies to us. It says to us that there is something other than God and something other than God's ways that can satisfy us. And that can harden our hearts. And when we're being deceived by sin, when sin looks better than God, we grab a hold of it, we're losing our grip on our confession. And then in chapter 10, in verse 22, he puts it like this. He says, Let us draw near with the true hearts in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, there are times in the course of life that we begin to doubt the promises of God. I don't know, but perhaps certain circumstances enter into the course of your life and you say, see, God really isn't here. See, God really isn't with us. The promises that God made really aren't true. Or perhaps you've suffered unanswered prayer, at least what you think in your own life is unanswered prayer. You've been going before the Lord and you've been confessing this need to Him and you've been saying, I need this, I need this, I need this, and still it appears to be unanswered. And, and so you begin to doubt the promises of God. So he says, hold fast, because God who promised is certainly faithful. And then in verse 35, what I read a minute ago, let me read the whole context there, beginning in verse 32. He writes, but recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, there was a time when you were willing to sacrifice all your stuff and identify with those who were suffering and those who were being persecuted with the faith for their faith, but that was in the former days. Now don't throw it away. Meaning what? Meaning there are times when life is so pressing against us that our faith rises to the occasion. And we trust and we work and we struggle and we sacrifice and we hang in there. And then when life eases over, it's as if we're throwing away our confidence. Why? Because we sort of feel like everything is fine and we get this temptation to be self-sufficient. And we go, oh, everything's cool now. Everything's fine now. I'm able to provide now. I don't really need God now. And he says, oh, be careful. Don't throw away your confidence. And then in chapter 12... In verse 12, just this one little piece of a sentence. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's saying, listen, I understand you're weary. 
In this whole context in chapter 12 here, it's about discipline from God and the hardships of life. He says, I understand you're weary. And sometimes the weariness from just living out life and just struggling with all the things we struggle with, with, with marriage and with family and with finances and with everything, wears us down. And he says, I know your knees are weak and your, 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 your hands are drooping. But, but don't, don't lose your confession." And he's also afraid that all these things, therefore, as they lose touch, lose grip with their confession, will cause them to drift away from God rather than be drawn to Him. And so he gives them these commands. Hold fast. Draw near to God. Now, I think it's important for us to stop here and to realize something as we, as we take the, really the solemnity of this, of this passage. It's a glorious one, we'll see. But also there's a very a solemn kind of word here with us. And it's important for us to recognize that the Christian life is not easy. Sometimes we get the impression that once we come to faith, it's a coast the rest of the way. But you never get that from the lips of Jesus. You never get that from this author of Hebrews. I have a good friend and he says, Bill, keep, telling, keep reminding your people that heaven isn't downhill. It's always an intention. It's always a determination. There's enemies out there from without and within and all of that coming. And so we shouldn't trivialize the necessity of maintaining faith and fighting for it. Paul refers to his life as a fight of faith. It's his fight to maintain faith and it's a fight with faith in the course of life. But the key thing there is fight. It's a struggle. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, I want you to be determined I don't want to let you to allow anything to get into your way. Continue to hold fast your confession. Understand there will be stuff that's going to come in time to chip away at that. And even as you hold fast your confession, there's going to be stuff that's going to come trying to step on your fingers in order to get you to, to release. But don't. And there's an interesting thing here too, I think, because I think there's a relationship between holding fast and drawing near. The great danger, the, the downward spiral cycle we can get in is this, that things discourage us and so we begin to loosen our grip on our confession. And then rather than draw near to God at that point, we drift away. That's when the deceitfulness of sin gets us and we start to lose our grip on our confession. We're not so determined as we once were and things in the world and things in life if you will, begin to look shinier and better and we begin to go after them and we're no longer drawing near to God for strength. And the more we no longer draw near to God for strength, the more we lose our grip. And the more we lose our grip, the more we drift, the more we drift, the, you, know, you get the point. And that's the great danger. And so the author of Hebrews now comes to us to short-circuit all of that and to come in and say, let's stop this, hold fast, draw near. Now, in order to get us to do that, he gives us some motivation. He just doesn't make that command as a sort of command that stands on its own. But he says, I want you to entice you. I want to entice you to hold fast and to draw near. And the way that he entices us, the way that he motivates us, the way that he tries to capture us to do that is by telling us something about Jesus. Now, that shouldn't surprise you. Because everything's about Jesus. So he's going to tell us something about Jesus in order to get us to hold fast and to draw near. And what he tells us is this, that he is our great high priest. He says, if you know that and you embrace that, then you should be able to hold fast and it will entice you to draw near. Now, 
Have you ever wondered why it took God so long to send Jesus? I mean, as I'm reading through the Bible, and I read Genesis chapter 3 on how Adam and Eve sinned, and God makes a promise he's going to send one, I'm sort of ready for him by Genesis chapter 4. I think that would be the right time. Genesis 4. Why wait till Matthew? Why wait till all those centuries, millennia, before Jesus comes? Now, to be really honest with you, I don't know the exact answer to this question. But I can tell you what God was doing while, between the time he made the promise and Jesus came. What he was doing was making preparation for Jesus. What he was doing was establishing a context and establishing categories so that when Jesus came, we would know him and understand him and understand what he was doing. And so he built a nation, a nation of Israel, to tell us that God wants for himself a people of his own possession, a treasured possession, a people that can be his, a community of people that will reflect his glory. He gave the law so that we would understand his holiness and his, his nature and also so that we would know that we need a savior. He gave a land that says a day will come when there will be a land of plenty for all my people uh, to live. And he also began to establish categories. He said, here's a king. I want you to understand what a king is. A king is one who rules righteously. And here's a prophet. He's one who speaks on behalf of God. And not only that, he gives them a priest. And he says, I want you to understand what a priest does. Now, he does all of that. He builds all those categories so we can understand Jesus and what he's to do. It isn't like the author of Hebrews says, oh man, I need a good illustration for Jesus. So he begins to thumb through the Old Testament and says, oh, here's one, high priest, that works. No, no, no. Before anything happens, God had Jesus in mind. And so the whole Old Testament history is the preparation for him. And so Israel exists because Jesus was to come. Kings exist because Jesus was to come. Prophets exist because Jesus was to come. High priests existed because that would help us understand Jesus. That's why Jesus could say as he was speaking in John chapter 5, in verse 39, he says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Now he was Affirming them in the sense, it is true that you'll find eternal life in the scriptures, but you'll only find eternal life in the scriptures as you find Jesus. And he says, you're right, I'm there. I really am there. Eternal life really is there because it's all about me. In fact, after he was resurrected, he came back and spoke to his disciples like this. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when Jesus was describing himself to his disciples after his resurrection, the place he went was the Old Testament. He says, here in the law, and here in the prophets, and here in the Psalms, here's me. And so now, he, now the author of Hebrews comes and says, ah, here's a category which God created in ancient Israel so we would understand Jesus. And it's this one of priest, most especially one of high priest. Now the chapters that come in Hebrews uh, from this chapter through at least chapter 10 will, will center around 
a great deal, this priestly notion. So we don't have to develop the whole deal today. But, but take a look at how the author of Hebrews does it in these first three verses of chapter 5. That's why I read them. He describes high priests like this. This is a summary of what we would find if we were reading through Old Testament passages on the high priest, which we will in ensuing weeks. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, the job of the high priest was to stand before God on behalf of people. Okay? He's chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And here's what he does. He says, To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's saying, listen, there's a reason why somebody has to stand for you before God. And it's because there's a breach between God and human beings. And it's because of sin. Now, what what will bridge that through this priest, this intermediary, this mediator, this bridge builder, this priest, what will bridge that are these gifts and sacrifices. He's saying, because of your sin, in order to be received by God, payment must be made, the penalty for your sin must be paid, and therefore, sacrifices must be made, and thus these sacrifices are made. Think of all of what God is telling, just in that little bit. What God is telling about life, he's saying, I'm going to establish this priesthood, and through this priest, uh, you're going to understand that there's a breach between the two of us and that someone needs to stand in your place to be your representative. He's got to be like you, but he's going to stand in your place and he's going to make a sacrifice so that you can be forgiven. All that right there. That's the gospel, of course, uh, in the midst of various passages in the Old Testament. Verse 2, he says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And so, you see, if you were in the Old Testament and you had sinned, and you were bringing a sacrifice that the priest would make, you would expect that when you came to him, he wouldn't act arrogantly, but humbly. Why? Because he knows exactly your deal. He knows exactly what you're going through. And so when you would come to make sacrifices, he wouldn't put you down. He wouldn't sneer. He wouldn't say, hey, you were here just last week for the same darn thing. What's going on? Because he'd know. Because he was a guy, too. And so he would understand what that life is like. And so he was approachable because he was like you. He would understand these things. You wouldn't have to feel that. You wouldn't have to apologize to him for coming. But your sacrifice would be to make atonement for your sin before God. Because he's like you. In fact, so much like you, verse 3. Because of this, he's, ob- he's obliged to uh, offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does those for the people. I mean, he understands. He understands that he needs these sacrifices as well as you. He understands you inside out. And so he's approachable in that sense. And so there shouldn't be anything that would keep you from going to that priest. There shouldn't be anything that should keep you from, from making sacrifice for your sins so that you can be right with God. That's what a priest was to do. And for generation after generation after generation, that's what life was supposed to be like. God teaching this lesson. God establishing this category so that by the time Jesus showed up, we could say this about him. He is our great high priest. Great. Greater than these other high priests. We should expect more out of him than out of these other high priests. He's our great high priest. And because he is, we can hold fast to, that, to this confession. Because you see, the confession depends upon the reliability of the high priest. Because we're trusting in him. We're trusting in this high priest. We're not trusting in anyone else. So if this high priest 
is successful, if this high priest is trustworthy, if he can deliver on his promises, if he really can stand on our behalf before God and make sacrifice in such a way that makes us acceptable to God, then trust him, hold fast to that. What other hope do you have? And here's what he says about it in verse 14. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He says he's greater than all these other high priests. See, there's something about that Old Testament system that just doesn't satisfy. That that gives you the sense that it's preliminary, that there's something more to come here. Uh, First of all, because you're offering animals as sacrifice. And you're thinking, that's just a lamb, I'm a human being. And without being arrogant, I know I'm worth more than an animal. I know that I'm the crown of God's creation. I know that I carry his image in this goat. God bless him, doesn't? Though sometimes I image the goat more than I image God. So there's that sense that this isn't quite finished. This isn't quite done. This isn't quite the way it's ultimately going to be. And then you look at this priest and you say, I really appreciate the fact that he stands on my behalf, but he's he's really so much like me that that's a bit of a problem. In fact, I can't always trust this particular high priest. Sometimes when I bring my offering, he looks at me like, what are you here again for? Don't you get it? And then after I get used to a high priest, he dies, and i got to break another one in. You know, you can just see, you know, the older I get, I sit around and talk to old people like myself, and we talk about how many presidents have you lived through, you know? Well, I suspect in ancient Israel, you know, 50-year-old guys would sit around and say, how many high priests have you lived through? I mean, there's just over and over again. And, and the best this high priest could do for you is take the blood of this animal into this very special place called the Holy of Holies. In fact, for a while he would go out of sight because he'd go behind this curtain. In fact, he would, he would do that only one day a year and only the high priest on this day of atonement. And he would take the blood of this goat and he would take it into this little room and he would sprinkle it and you'd wonder, is this really going to work? I mean, is he holy enough to do that? Did he really make enough sacrifice for himself that he's going to be accepted in that little room? Or will he be zapped? Will my sacrifice really be accepted? Will everything really be okay? And then when he emerges from that room, you go, whew, it worked. But of Jesus, our great high priest, the author of Hebrews says, he's the very one who has passed through the heavens. He didn't just go in a little room and do it. He went into the heavens, the very dwelling place, into the very presence of God. He stood and he brought his blood. And he says, the very one who passed through the heavens, Jesus. Now, when the author of Hebrews uses Jesus, he's being very deliberate there. And he's talking about the humanity of Jesus. He's just like us. This man, Jesus, he he represents us perfectly. He reflects us perfectly. And so he represents us before God as our perfect high priest, you see. And there he is. Jesus. But not simply Jesus. It says Jesus, the Son of God. So on the one hand, we're satisfied. You say, oh yes, here's a man. He represents me. But then the Son of God, meaning he's worth us all. He's of great worth. It isn't just the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. One author puts it like this. He says, when Jesus enters into the heavens and he presents his blood before his father, his father looks at him and he says, that's enough. Yes. 
That's all that's necessary. That's all that's needed. It's enough blood for us all. Because he's worth us all. Because he's of infinite value. So he's gone through the heavens. He's alive. He's in the very presence of God. He isn't like these other priests who die every year. He's Jesus, the very Son of God. And the author of Hebrews says, no, trust that. What else could you possibly trust? What else could you possibly need? Other than one who goes and makes sacrifice for your sins perfectly, presents it into the very presence of God, and is alive and stays there so that all of that is pled for you every day and every night. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 of Jesus, the high priest, he writes this, Consequently, he, that is, Jesus Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always there. You never have to worry about him dying. You never have to worry about him leaving. You never have to worry about him forgetting who you are because he died for you, those who believe. It's us. He's there for you. You you can depend on him. I can't wait till we get to that verse. Probably be a year. Hebrews chapter 8. What's this? He says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There he is, right at the right hand of God. Verse 11 in chapter 9, we read this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. It's done. Not preliminary, not a shadow, not anticipating anything else needed to come. He's the real deal. He's it. He's the high priest. Trust him. Hold fast to that confession. Don't let anything deter you. And when you become deterred, think about him. Think about him. Consider Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession, chapter 3, verse 1. Think about Him. He's done it. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say that since He is this great High Priest, then it means we should confidently draw near to God's throne. Look how he puts it in verse 15. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, that was the great thing about a high priest. He was supposed to be like us enough that he was to be able to deal gently with us. And so he could be approachable. And you think, how can God be approachable? I mean, when Isaiah saw God, he saw him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were all these angels round about him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah hit the deck and said, I'm, 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 I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And, and he hit the deck, and he, and he felt like he was blowing up. He was falling apart. So how can we approach God? He said, well, he is approachable through this high priest. Because this high priest how he puts it, notice, is, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, Mrs. Turner, in the seventh grade English class, mine, grammar class, would say, there's a better way to say that. You should just say that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That would be much more straightforward, she would tell me. 
I wish I'd have known this verse then. Oh, man, I would have told her. Um, the way God puts it is this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, why that odd phrase? Well, I'm going to use bad grammar as well. But the point there is that our high priest is not able not to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he's compelled by his very heart to sympathize with us. He can't but sympathize with us. There's something about him that he can't but sympathize with us. It's impossible for him not to sympathize with us. He has to, in a sense, to be true to himself at that point. Not to sympathize with us means that he would be betraying who he really is as our high priest. So when we go to him, we should understand that he will be sympathetic to us. Why? Well, to complement my previous question on have you ever wondered why it took God so long to send Jesus Have you ever wondered why he stayed so long once he came? Now you may say we didn't stay that long, 30-something years. His adult ministry life was only about three years. and I appreciate that, but if I would have been Jesus, I would have wanted to come and do it as quickly as possible. But you see, he needed to stay long enough so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. Because you see, to be a merciful, sympathetic high priest, to be one who sympathizes, means you've got to experience what they experience so that you can so know it that it moves you. Now, some of us understand this. If you've experienced a death in your family, for instance, you learn very firsthand how that feels. And thus, when someone else experiences a death, you're apt to be merciful, to be compelled to go to them and help them. If you're one who was confused about the gospel and went and sat in a Sunday school class and it became clear to you, you're likely to become merciful to other confused people and say, come to Sunday school with me because you know how that feels and you want to help them. See, mercy is this expression of love that's based on a condition in a person who is suffering. And the love is expressed by trying to bring relief in the most appropriate way. That's what a merciful person is. That's what a sympathetic person is. In fact, the great word of Jesus is that he is one of compassion. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll find a wonderful expression that often is, is made right before Jesus heals somebody. And the phrase is, and he had compassion. Because you see, this compassion is this sense of mercy. And this mercy is this sense of sympathy, which compels action. In fact, one of my favorite healing miracles of Jesus is when he heals this man with leprosy. You can read about it in Mark chapter 1. I know these days we have diseases which we fear, but in the days of Jesus, leprosy was feared like none other. So much so, as you know, that lepers were quarantined either locationally or practically. And by practically, I mean even if they were out and about, still there was announcements made that they had leprosy, and so don't come near. So you have to understand that when Jesus approached this leper, It was an amazing thing just even to come close to him. It must have amazed him. It must have amazed all the people around him. 
you get the sense that there would be people that are saying, don't go so close. Even the leper himself might be saying, don't come so close. Because he had never been that near anyone other than another leper. And the scripture says, though, about Jesus, and he had compassion, and he reached out and touched him. That was an amazing moment. But there's a sense in which, you see, Jesus was compelled to touch him. There's a sense in which Jesus could not, not touch him. Because, you see, when he saw him, there's something in Jesus that so enables him to identify with outcasts that when he sees one outcast, there's nothing he can do but touch him. And then you get the sense that healing, relief just flowed from him. There's a sense in which healing could not, not come because Jesus could not, not touch him because Jesus so identified with this one who was an outcast that he could not, not be merciful towards him. And that's the sense here. The sense here is that we have a, a, a faithful, merciful high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Why? Because he knows everything as he's, as he's, he's experienced it. Turn to Matthew in chapter 4 quickly uh, to look at how it was that Jesus was tempted as we. For he says he's been tempted in every respect just as we. Now that's one of the most mysterious statements in all of the scripture. To speak of the very Son of God being tempted uh, in every way, such as we. Here's how he puts it in this particular passage. And don't turn to this if you're looking at Matthew. I don't want to confuse you. But he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you might ask the question, how can that be? Uh, how can he be tempted like we without sin? I mean, sin so works in us, in our nature, that it causes us to sin, that which compels us, it tempts us to sin. There's sin present within us. If Jesus didn't have that, how can he live the same way we did? How can he be tempted, tried in every way such as we? I don't know. Sorry. I don't know. That's just a, it's a mysterious thing. Except to say this, first. That having the inclination to sin is not necessary to be completely human. Having the inclination to sin is not necessary in a person's life to be completely human. Adam, for instance, at his creation was completely human. Prior to the, his sin, as far as we can tell, didn't have a natural inclination to sin. But he was human. Us, believers in Christ, when we're glorified after Jesus returns and we get our new bodies and we're living on the new earth, we'll be perfectly human. We won't be angels. We won't be whatever anybody else thinks we're to be, whatever medieval art pictures us as being. Uh, we won't be that. We're going to be human beings, perfectly human, without sin. So sin and the inclination to sin isn't necessary to be human. So Jesus can identify us with us even without that. But not only that, if you think of it, you and I are tempted by circumstances without, by sin within. And Jesus was hammered day in and day out by Satan himself. And even though Adam, for instance, 
didn't have within him an inclination to sin. He was no match for Satan. And Jesus did battle with him over and over and over again. As long as, as far as we know, Satan only tempted Adam and Eve that first time that they fell. Jesus endured it time and time again. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it. He wrote this in the early 50s. Not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist when it comes to evil. He knows the depth of it. He fought it day in and day out to the end. I give in in about seven to ten minutes. Generally, that's a good day. If I last longer than that, I get very weary. You understand what I mean. But Jesus fought it day in and day out. This temptation in Matthew 4, this classic, what we have delineated here for us, came right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. Hang on, i got ten minutes. You're used to going until ten after twelve. It's okay. It's summer. I have twelve minutes, I think, maybe. But in this particular case, Jesus was, was baptized. And then, after his baptism, the Scripture says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tempted by the devil. Now, why that? Well, his baptism, you see, was, in one sense was his commissioning. That's where Jesus identified with the sins of the people. He didn't need to be baptized for his own sin, obviously, but he submitted to baptism so that he could say, I'm identifying with you and my mission is this to bring cleansing. This is what I'm to do. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit said, all right, if that's what you're to do, engage in battle now. Let me lead you into the battle. And here's where it is. The very battle with Satan himself. And so Satan comes to Jesus. And in a very real way, you see, he tempts Jesus in the same way that he tempts us. And in the same way that the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing were tempted. Because, you see, they were tempted to lose their grip on their confession, that is, their faith in the promises of God. And they were tempted to draw away, not near, to God. So the very first one, uh, Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's a sense in which he's saying, listen, if you're the son of God, are you really? But I, I think you are, you think you are. So if you're the son of God and you've been fasting for 40 days, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure Jesus was at his best. You've been fasting for 40 days and you're really hungry. If you were the son of God, don't you think your heavenly father would supply bread for you? But he hasn't, has he? So why don't you take matters into your own hands and make some for yourself? You obviously can because you're the son of God. You can actually make bread out of stone. Go for it. Now in the mystery of God, 
and the mystery of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, that was a real temptation that sung deeper than you and I can ever imagine. He could do it. But to do it means he wouldn't be trusting his Heavenly Father. To do it means that he'd be, he would be stepping outside of what his Father had said. And so he goes back to his word, Jesus does. it. says, no, 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 I can't do that. I can only live by bread alone. But you see, he, I can't live by bread alone, but only the word that comes from the mouth of God. And he tempts us the very same way. He says, you know, you're a child of God, aren't you? Now, if you were a child of God... Wouldn't you think God would be meeting your needs that you have? Let's line them up, all these unmet needs. Don't you think God would meet those if, if, if really you were a child of God? And clearly he hasn't. So why don't you try it on your own? Why don't you try a different way? Why don't you try another way? And if Satan comes to us in the midst of those needs that are being, not being met, and some of them are painful for us, you can just feel him stepping on our fingers trying to get us to loosen our grip on that confession that says, no, Christ is the only way. And as he tempts us increasingly, we find ourselves uh, drifting and not drawing near. Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And when it happens to us, we go to him and he doesn't turn us away and he doesn't scorn and he doesn't frown and he doesn't say, oh, why are you here? You should be stronger than that. He simply says, yes, you know, I, I understand. I know exactly how you feel. So the author of Hebrews says, if you know this high priest, you'll draw near to him at those times because he's so inviting. And then he goes on, Satan does. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. And, 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 and that would be true. You get the impression that the angels were given charge over Jesus, that he jumped, they'd have caught him. But that would be testing the love of God. It doesn't say come to us in the very same way and say, listen, if you're a child of God, you can do that. It'll be okay. God will, God will keep that from being too bad in your life. Oh, you can cheat on that test. And if you're a child of God, the angels will catch up. It'll be all right. Just, just try. He'll forgive you anyway. So don't, don't worry about that. That sexual sin, that divorce, that whatever that is, that stealing, uh, that coveting. Don't Don't worry. You're a child of God. Just, God loves you. And it is true that God loves us. And it's true that God forgives us. And it's true that God disciplines. But we shouldn't put him to the test. And when Satan comes in moments like that, we can feel our fingers losing their grasp. We can find ourselves drifting away. Jesus says, no, 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 come to me. When that happens, come to me, really. When you start losing your grip because of Satan's temptations, really come to me. The third one, Satan comes to Jesus and says takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kings of the world and their glory, and he said to them, all these I give you if you fall down to worship me. And of course, all the nations were given to Jesus by his Father. But to get them, he would have to go through the cross so that he could have the nations and he could have and redeem those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And Satan says, you don't have to go through the cross. Just... Come directly to me. And he says the same thing to us. He says, listen, you don't need to go through the cross to get to God. You can come to me. I'll give you the world. I'll give you all the nations. I'll give you all that you need. Don't worry. And Jesus said, no, no, no. If you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. 
You see, when that happens, and Satan does that all the time in various ways, he says, listen, just don't worry about the cross, don't worry about going that way, don't worry about going through Jesus, don't worry about this high priest, don't worry about that confession, just come to me and I'll give you what you need. And, of course, he's not that obvious and not that direct, but you get my point. And we can feel our fingers slipping around this confession, and we can find ourselves drifting away. And Jesus says, no, 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 come to me when you're tempted like that. And Jesus, of course, lived life to the full, and his father took him through various circumstances, and Satan tested him in various ways. And as a man, don't you know that when he looked around with no place to hide, to, to, to lay his head, and he saw all his friends with all kinds of stuff, don't you know that the evil one came to tempt him to covet? And don't you know that when people lied against him and falsely accused him, uh, that he didn't feel a sense of self-pity being tempted in his direction that he needed to overcome all throughout the course of his life? And then the classic night in the garden when everything was before him, when he was going to face death laced with our sin. And very rationally and very reasonably he began to go to his father and say, is there any other way? Because that's the great terror of the moment. Don't you know that Satan was behind those rocks? Getting Jesus to think, no, this isn't the way. No, the cup can pass. If only it can pass. If only it can pass. But Jesus maintained his confession, his trust in the promises of God that his Father would take care of him, that his Father would deliver him. And thus he went to the cross. So when we come to Jesus, you see, he sympathizes with us. He can't not but be merciful. And so, the author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Which is the great news, you see. Because since it's been without sin, he can really help us. He knows what it's like to get through all these different passes. He knows what it's like to, be th- to get through all of these temptations. And he's the very one who can strengthen and help us. Therefore, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You see, now... Because of this high priest, it's a throne of grace. Without him, the throne of God is a throne of merit and a throne of judgment. You see, without this high priest, the throne of God is a throne of merit and a throne of judgment. Because you see, in order to enter into the presence of God, we must be righteous. We must be holy. And so if we come outside of this high priest, if we don't go through this high priest building the bridge between us and God, then you see we come simply in our own name, simply in our own way, simply by way of our own merit. And so we stand at this throne of merit and because we can't be good enough, then it becomes a throne of judgment and a throne of condemnation. And we're condemned. But to those who hold fast their confession, he says, oh, it's a throne of grace. Grace because your high priest has already merited. He's already come in righteousness and holiness. And he's done that for you and in you and you and him. And he's clothed you with that. Therefore, you can stand in this, at this throne. And it's a throne that dispenses grace, this free gift. You don't deserve it. So don't wait till you deserve it. Come in the midst of this high priest. And you know what you'll get? Well, in a timely way, that is, in the time of need, right when you need it, right at the nick of time, right at the right time, not too early, not too late, you'll get mercy and grace. Of course, mercy, you see, he can't not but 
sympathize with you and he'll bring you help and relief and he'll bring you grace that is sustaining grace, empowering grace to help you in your time of need. Now you might be asking, what's that look like? If I'm sick, will that bring healing? If I'm out of work, will that bring a job? If I'm lonely, will that bring a companion? If I'm afraid, will that bring courage? I don't know. I don't know exactly what it'll bring. But I know this, it'll bring mercy and grace to help you. And what it will help you do is maintain your grip on your confession. Remember the Apostle Paul, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that describes his life. And he says that there came upon him a messenger from Satan to buffet him. And he referred to it as a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. I don't like looking at this. We don't know quite what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Could have been the persecution that he got from various ones who were against him. It could have been a physical ailment of some sort. Most think it's that, probably. But we really don't know. It's really not described, and it really doesn't matter. All we know is that it came to him, and it was troublesome to him so much that he said he prayed to God three times. And I don't know if that was three times back-to-back within in a minute and a half, which is sort of my prayer life when I'm uncomfortable. Uh, or if it was over a period of weeks or months or three times means just a lot of times. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. He said he pleaded with God three times to take it away, and God didn't. But he gave him grace. And God came to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. And its sufficiency was that it enabled Paul to accept the thorn as good from God. And to lead him to his throne of grace. To make him aware of his weakness. That he always needed God's help. And he held fast his confession. And drew near. So the guarantee, I think, from our high priest is this. You're needy. I'm needy. There's all kinds of things coming against us that's causing us to lose our grip on our confession and move us away from God. And he says, here's how you fight that. You fight that by considering this one who's your high priest. He's trustworthy. He's done it. There's no other way. And you pray. And the guarantee is you'll tighten your grip. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us and all the onslaughts that come against us in life from without and within and circumstances and that you would enable us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession that our thoughts would be upon him and we would trust him and Father that in our weakness we'd be drawn to him this one who cannot not sympathize with us this one who cannot not be merciful towards us and we would come to this throne that's a throne of grace because of him and that we would receive mercy and grace at every moment of need so that our confession would remain 
strong. For you are worthy to be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.